Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQ just drop shot? I could have been. I, I have plans. I like this All shit. It is a you know it's Dance off, bro. It is your Me destiny. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Let the games begin. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week, we are in the presence of greatness. Brendan Cassidy from the In Session Film Podcast has joined us to talk the master. So if we sound off, it's because we've been basking in how awesome he is. Brendan, <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you feeling, sir? I'm, I'm really intimidated now. How am I going to live up to that? It's like, first off, first off, you're, you're making the chip on my shoulder grow even to more extensive heights, which I don't know if that's a good thing. But regardless, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, as you guys probably already know. So to talk about one of these films with you gentlemen uh, is really exciting. So thanks for having me. Excellent. No, we're actually, yeah, this is, this is the combination of a really weird thing for us. We've been listening to you guys for some time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We've been, we're big fans of in session film and and, then have frequently mentioned them on the show. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy to have you here to talk about something that is as uh, it's it's well within your wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I please you guys. And as I said, it's great to be here. And thank you for those shout outs. I really do appreciate that. Our, my relationship with JD goes back uh, to when I started listening to In Session. I was uh, mm-hmm. doing real table talks with film faculty. And mm-hmm. I remember I was trying to set up a show and I needed to get a quote from someone who's you know, rather, mm-hmm. I'll say, important uh, on, on Twitter. And uh, he ended up stealing my idea for a show. <laughs> uh, I won't I won't name names. I won't name names. But he ended up stealing my idea for a show. And I actually contacted JD and said, I'm sorry for disturbing you, you know, just being a polite Canadian I am. Yeah. And I said, what would you do in my place? You know, would you would you call him out? What would you do? He said, well, you know, this shit happens, man. So yeah. he says, what I would do is I would just let it go. And so that's basically the early beginnings of a relationship uh, between myself and, and JD. Was, that's adorable. Through, yeah, <laughs> it was just a, the weirdness of like, someone stole my shit. What do I do about it? <laughs> And that was also something of a nightmare because when he when J- when Jason contacted me initially about uh, about maybe forming a show together, he uh, he had mm-hmm. said about this idea of getting me on uh, and us two working on a show together. And at the same time, I was working sort of on on a show in the back of my head, and I was going to get maybe my brother or something to do it. Sure. But I basically said this as he was trying to convince me to do this show, and. Immediately, he started seeing this like echo of you know, this effect of what had happened before. That some guy just said, "Yeah, yeah, you've got a great idea for a show. I'll take it." And he started, <laughs> immediately, he started freaking out and backpedaling. And I said, "No, no, no! I'm not actually trying to steal your idea. I'm just, I'm just telling you like I'm interested in this, so I would like to do this." But uh, I came oh, out trying to avoid that kind of confrontation. Then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's a, no, so this is this is really good for us right now to have in session. It, it's a monument for us it caps out our 2016 in a great way because like i said we've looked up to you guys for such a long time and having you on the show for us is just a a step in the right direction it's i think it's uh the first of 
hopefully many wonderful collaborations with you gents because like i said admiration is is an understatement Ab- and, we, and we would look show. forward to that unfortunately as we kind of know jd couldn't be here due to unfortunate circumstances yeah, uh, exactly. but he yeah, he sends right. his uh you know he sends his regards his apologies uh unfortunately i guess he's just getting old uh, I, i'm glad i'm not even 30 <laughs> years old yet <laughs> are making me feel ancient now yeah i know it must suck to be in your 30s (laughs) hey we've got a camera going here you actually look good so you're fine man (laughs) oh yeah but still you can't see the gray in the beard yet not yet all right so we're gonna have to stop teasing all the listeners out there with us just going around in this circle jerk Mm -hmm. uh speaking of jerking off in the master no (laughs) (laughs) There will be people on the outside who will not understand the condition you men have. Now, upon your shoulders rests the responsibility of a post-war world. And smile. You can start a business, filling station, grocery, or hardware store. Get a few acres of land and raise some chickens. You have a break coming? Ten minutes. If the average civilian had been through the same stresses that you have been through, undoubtedly, they too would have developed the same nervous condition. You must understand. You want to get the lake back? How did I get down here? You're acting aggressive because you drink too much alcohol. What do you do? I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man, just like you. <laughs> He's been writing all night. You seem to inspire something in him. What we will do now will urge you toward existence within a group, society of family. Good science, by definition, allows for more than one opinion. Otherwise, you merely have the will of one man, which is the basis of cult. And this is where we are at. To have to explain ourselves. For what? The only way to defend ourselves is to attack. You know, you should wake up, Val. Father speaking, you might learn something. He's making all this up as he goes along. You don't see that? I wonder how he got here and what he's after. Is it really all so easy that he just came across us? You are an everlasting spirit, Freddie. I don't believe you. You make this up. I you just I know you're trying to calm me down, but just say something that's true! Are you thoughtless in your remarks? Do your past failures bother you? Is your life a struggle? Is your behavior erratic? What are you running from? He's dangerous. And he will be our undoing if we continue to have him here. If we are not helping him, then it is we who have failed him. Perhaps he's past help. Or insane. Yeah, so this is episode 16, where we're going to be talking The Master, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. And based on IMDb, the story is a naval veteran arrives home from war, unsettled and uncertain of his future, until he is tantalized by the cause and its charismatic leader. The film stars Joaquin Phoenix as Freddie Quell, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lancaster Dodd, Amy Adams as Peggy. His wife. I, I, probably Peggy <laughs> Exactly. Peggy, his wife. And uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. I'm going to throw this over to Brendan. 
Brendan, your thoughts on the master to start off this conversation? Yeah, so uh, to get my thoughts as well as JD's thoughts, um, if you go, Absolutely. yeah, if you, and he and I are very much in the same boat when it comes to the master specifically. But if you go back to over a year ago, myself, JD did an episode where we talked about our top five favorite movies of the decade thus far, and that was from. 2010 up until 2014 at the time. We recorded that in 2015. And on that show, we were joined by Adam Kempinar from Film Spotting, which we were very uh, privileged about having. We were very proud of that. All three of us had the master somewhere in our top five of the decade so far. Oh, wow. um, cool. In wow. fact, uh, Adam had it at his, at, as a, his number one film of the entire decade so far, and I forget what number I had it at. I don't. It doesn't matter. It's one of the best films of the decade. Is basically what I'm saying. Um, it's. It, I'm not sure. I would say it's. It's certainly not my favorite PTA film, but I can definitely make an argument as to why it's one of his better, if not his, maybe one of his overall best films. Um, in some ways, I've always been more of a personal fan for films maybe such as Magnolia and even There Will Be Blood, but that's mostly because I saw those films first. Those are the films that really right. uh, introduced me to Paul Thomas Anderson and some of the different aesthetics he is able to bring when you look at his Altman era versus his more kind of modern Kubrickian era in certain respects. Uh, but The Master, I think, is very much a glorious extension of what was even introduced in There Will Be Blood when you look at you know, like the ideas of American uh, of American ideals of the time of the 19. 20s up until the early 1950s where it spans to and some of the uh, some of the ideas it brings up about religious hypocrisy and fanaticism as represented by the Eli Sunday and that use of a that basically using that as an abuse of power so to speak that does play into certain respects when it comes into the master Obviously, it shares some influence to, uh, you know, an inspiration to L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, but it's not directly about that. I feel what's it basically uses that as a very interesting crutch to add some authenticity of the 1950s era and time period and becomes yet another uh, specific focus into the American ideals of this time. And it's actually a very heartbreaking tale about the desire for intimacy and familiar relations, especially from someone that feels very lonely and isolated and empty coming back from from the war being Freddie Quell and his dealings with PTSD it's a very well layered and surrounded film that's not just about one thing and I think that's what makes Paul Thomas Anderson's film so uh, so interesting is that it's very ambiguous in its thematic notions but everything can still be tied together through a collective whole that is very well done, and there's a lot we can talk about with this film, whether it be thematically or even just aesthetically, the way it looks and the way it's shot. It's beautiful 65 millimeter, I believe it was, or maybe 70 millimeter. I'm not exactly sure which one it was. Six, 65. 65 projected onto 70. Yeah, and it's it's gorgeous to look at. There's so much going for this film. I'd say if it wasn't for Magnolia and There Will Be Blood, this would be my favorite PTA film. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. That's it for us this week. No. <laughs> <laughs> See, okay, this is the warning you have to have. Myself and even JD, we ramble introductory thoughts like nobody's business. So if that was a, if that was a bit extensive, I apologize. Not at all. That was just funny. I was like, we don't have anything to say anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that does, it does a great job of touching on a lot of that. That, that perfect thing, what you said about um, how his films are so based in interpretation. And yeah. that's what we've sort of been getting at so far in the retrospective. It seems to be the recurring thread. Paul Thomas Anderson makes these films to allow the the, the audience to really pick it apart. Mm -hmm. Basically, wherever, whichever starting point you want to choose. And for a lot of what we've got, what we're going to be talking about today, they're going to, it's, it's, everybody has gone into this, I think, in some totally different way. And mm -hmm. there'll be some yeah. clashing points, but, the, uh, you know, connecting threads. 
but ultimately, you know, it just shows how open-minded and 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 rich with material uh, that these that these films are that we can yeah. actually just approach them from totally different perspectives and still, you know, get get a totally functioning end thought of the film and that it supports itself. And it's great. It's great that these, mm-hmm. he makes films that are able to do that. Absolutely. I think, like Brendan was pointing out, this is a, a wonderful. Uh, jumping off point into trying to understand just exactly what it is Paul Thomas Center wants to talk about. And you can get pretty much anything you want from it, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, comparing it like a logical continuation of There Will Be Blood, mm-hmm. you know, because the film deals yet again with transitions. It's something that I posited in our our, uh, our, uh, our episode on There Will Be Blood, yeah. you know, ideologies. And I think that he explores those changes in in, uh, in uh, The Master. Mm-hmm. Um I think that from a historical standpoint, I mean, if we look at the history of the United States, a lot of the, the, the philosophy that was in the United States at the time deals with man's relationship to land, you know, to nature, sure. mm. you know, that constant westward move, you know, from the Puritans leaving England to settle in the first U.S. colonies in New England in the 1620s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And I mean, since that period, there's been many moves to the West, you know, most notably like you'll have Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase in 1803. And uh, you'll have the transcendentalist philosophy that we were talking about uh, at one point in the 1830s, you know, positing this 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 uh, projection onto nature mm-hmm. um, in order to kind of find God's intervention, you know, and to understand nature or God as it were. Sure. Um, and if you look at, you know, how the gold rush was another push westward, you know, during the 1848 to 1855, sure. you know, mm-hmm. that California gold rush was again a westward move. And I think that this film anderson's film uh, it brings out that culmination of the westward move everything had been something external you know this was man conquering nature can- conquering land but after the industrial revolution after the two world wars you know this faith in god that we had established in there will be blood mm-hmm. you know had kind of waned mm-hmm. quite a bit sure. you know and i think that what i'm getting at is that at the end of the second world war there was no land left to conquer there was no uh, nowhere for man to get a fresh start nothing external on which you could evaluate yourself you know you reassess your self-worth and if there's no land left on the external side where is there left to go and it's on the inside so there will be blood that ending point if you will that land is nothing the logical left to conquer. yeah that the logical conclusions of those sort of physical and spiritual grabs you know mm-hmm. that sort of external search that we see exactly. through plain view and sunday has now come to its inevitable conclusion that there's nothing left so where do we go I, that makes that makes sense as a conclu- as a as yeah. a continuation and so you know i thought that anderson in this one was exploring man's journey of transitions from external one to an internal one especially in the 1940s after world war ii you know mm-hmm. you had these really interesting period of psychological and religious reform you know there was a huge push for like um i don't know you'd call it interdenominational cooperation you know to revitalize the church in the 1940s mm-hmm. sure. you know but it also gave rise to many skeptics you know so you'd have like these new movements that started to thrive you know alternative creeds science especially look at what they're talking about in the mass with ptsd and i think that anderson really wanted to choose that period in time as the logical continuation to There Will Be Blood. Because as we spoke about it in our first episode on There Will Be Blood, we were talking about the transition from idealism to pragmatism. Mm -hmm. And to me, the master has become now the transition from pragmatism to existentialism. Right. 
Yeah, and and, I think that's a great point, and I think just to kind of bounce off that quickly, um, I think there'll be—I think you're absolutely right that there'll be blood was a very physical film in that regard. And I think the uh, exterior setting is very key in driving that film home thematically in many ways. So as a result, the master becomes probably arguably his most introspective film that he has ever done. Absolutely, and I think that's a great absolutely. way in, refle- in reflecting that. And right. I mean, well, that's it—a very introspective film. But the only way that I came to that conclusion was by looking at the ships. The ship that they have, the Aletheia. Ah, that's a great point. And I was comparing it to John Winthrop's ship, the one that he came over on Arabella. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look, if you read the model of Christian charity, you know, the shining uh, city upon a hill, you know, aboard the ship, the Arabella, they came over and he gave that speech. But Arabella is derived from the Latin word orabilis, meaning prayerful or devout. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Now, Lancaster Dodd, he travels aboard the Aletheia, which is derived from the Greek word meaning truth or disclosure. Hmm. So if you're looking at what Anderson is doing, he's recuperating the imagery of the ship, you know, uh, or the sailing ship, I should say. He shows that there's been a transition in philosophy or ideology going from a from praying to something outside man mm-hmm. to an exploration directed inwards, a search for truth from within, an introspection, like you said. Yeah. So I thought that that was one of the biggest aspects that Anderson was going. In, and it's a really big way of kind of rounding up if Anderson is able to bring that into his movie. That gives us a lot of stuff to talk about. It does, as Brendan was pointing out so, yeah. at the beginning. But even even his religion that uh, Lancaster Dodd represents, called the Cause, I think is a like a literal reflection of what that is intended to do. Uh, like he even goes as far as to say that type of introspective investigation can even cure certain diseases such as cancer because it allows uh, them to, co- to go. Yeah. yeah, it allows them. Right, yeah, it allows right. them to basically his his uh, interpretation is that it allows them to go back to their own uh, physical ancestry to understand the actual root cause of some of these uh, uh, of some of these diseases and issues uh, which I think actually goes hand in hand with with uh, what you're talking about there right yeah and, and definitely as as far as setting goes setting it after World War II which is very much a a war based around the extremes of, of ideologies you know and, mm-hmm. right. and, 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 and it's it was it became it moved battle on from a physical battlefield to a very conceptual battlefield to see that sort of the 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 people who respond to that is then to go thir- further interior rather than exterior. I think that mm-hmm. plays into a lot of what you're saying there about where this shifts dynamic from there will be blood uh, and that we move into, and we see that through Dodd and that he takes that battle to ourselves and that he looks back at our own history. That's the intention of the cause is to go and look at what makes man and what makes his issues mm-hmm. by somehow tapping into that to previous life trillions of years back trillions of yeah. a tea, sir <laughs> yeah. and i mean it's kind of funny because like i said if there's no land left to conquer i mean this was supposed to be where man was going to become like a rich in a sense right yeah by conquering look at look at plain view at the end of there will be blood he's rich from oil something that he pulled out of the earth yeah but if there's nothing left to pull i mean even if dodd's practice is a bit well we'll call it you know there are skeptics like john moore in, in the movie yeah but it's essentially another quest to get money, right? He's drilling mm-hmm. literally inside people. It is. To kind of get yeah. that kind of riches. It's a different type of physicality that he's actually, uh, a- I guess, attacking, so to speak. And I think when you're talking about some of the ideas of the film's uh, setting, for example, I think that's actually very interesting to see how this film is actually very well juxtaposed against something like There Will Be Blood, which has a lot of physical open land and landscapes, whereas uh, in The Master, right, yeah. I think you're I think you're absolutely right in how visually this film does showcase a new point in time, you know, you know, 
post-industrial revolution, for example, where the majority right. of the landscapes are very urban. You know, it's a very urban mm -hmm. landscape that takes place mostly throughout this film. There are only a few moments where we actually see some of those direct connections to nature that you were talking about earlier there, Jason. Uh, <laughs> yep. that, like, you know, maybe some of those scenes on the beach in the very beginning of the film. But those are very few and far between. The, the film is very uh, deliberate in using its setting from a more industrial angle, which I think does give that sense. The physical land that's out there to conquer is much more minimal in this time, which actually the only way that they can continue that form of a quest is internally amongst other people physically. Yeah, right. sure. Absolutely. I mean, even if even if you look at one of the kind of recurring shots in the film is this sort of the wake of the boat in the sea. We're looking at yeah. nature, but we're only looking at it from the single frame, and we're not really looking at nature on its own, but what man has stirred it up, you know, what's yeah. left of it once we've already passed through it. So I think that plays and, like, shows exactly, and, like, summarizes that move from nature to that more urban physical thing, and that we're looking now at what man does past nature, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I mean, it really points out, you know, if we're looking at nature right now, there is a binary in the film that actually tackles nature, right? We have that water versus desert throughout the entire time, you know? Sure. Liquid is a huge, huge aspect of the master. There's an interesting sure. dichotomy there, and I think it's a great reflection of Freddie Quell's own internal struggle as well. The amount of resources that he actually could have access to, but uh, can't really do anything about. I think it definitely shows the torment that he's actually starting the film at. Oh, definitely. Great. I think one thing I want to comment on, too, regarding some of the opening shots on the beach is that sense of uh, physical isolation that you do feel. Even when they are on the actual sand, while they kind of take refuge for a little bit before they make their way back home, uh, there, is right. this, there is this sense of emptiness when, when you're actually on this type of locale. And I think that's another direct reflection of Freddie Quell's own mentality and his own isolation that he's feeling. And through the, the as the narrative progresses in this film, we learn a little bit about him that he had an old girlfriend that didn't work out we definitely know that he's a bit tormented and kind of haunted by that that helps explain maybe some of his more sexual sexually aroused tendencies if you will uh mm. and, and and a lot of that could also be attributed to some of his own direct effects with ptsd and i think that's very deliberate here as well um but i do think the locale of some of these opening beat shots do even amp amplify this almost this tone of emptiness and i think that is very much uh, deliberate on Anderson's part to help us give almost a bit of a relatability to what Freddie Quell is going through in many re in many respects. Well, I was just thinking about um, if we look at uh, how Freddie sort of his interactions with nature, we're kind of thinking about he's with the, the ship in the water. You see the sea behind him sort of torn apart. We look at him on the sand. He shapes it like like a woman, you know, basically. Yeah. And if we look at him, you know, in the desert, he he's riding this bike right through it, right straight past it and out of it. When it comes to nature, I think that's something that connects with his character, and I think that says a lot about what Brandon was saying, that isolation, that kind of it it, it toys at his sort of um, introspective kind of side of his personality. Uh, maybe it's beyond his understanding, but I feel that it kind of comments on how society has pressured him uh, that he has this mm. while while he's always looking to connect with something pure, something reflective of himself. Humanity has always pervaded those little pieces. You know, he never truly gets away from, and it's society's pressures that you know prevent him from fitting in. He's a guy. He's an outcast, basically. Yeah. That's what PTSD to him. It, it comes in the fact that he just doesn't fit in. He gets angry, assaults the guy in the mall. You know, he can't be a part of that system. Uh, and a lot of that, I think. His, his search to 
with nature and the way he shapes like as a woman uh, he, he basically he's trying to connect the two his own more animalistic side with the pressures of society and how that's hmm. sort of forcing him to sort of adapt and he he's got this middle ground you know he makes this woman he rides that motorcycle but he's not he's he's not gaining anything from it. you know he can't he's not functioning he's he, he is pretending to have sex with a pile of sand you know <laughs> yeah. he's to others to us it looks insane but this is him trying to reconcile reconcile these two sides of his personality at war and the kind of i think i know jason's going to get a little more into ptsd and how that's explored through the story but that, that to me that's another way we could see it and how it reflects on freddie's character sure wouldn't it be a reconnecting with the earth in a sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's the thing. If he's if he's the animalistic, you know, person that um, Dodd keeps telling him he is, you animal. Uh, you yeah. know, if that's if that's his relation to that, then of course he's got more of a calling with nature, and so he is trying to be one as such with the earth. You know, yeah. he he sees the desert, and he doesn't come back. He just keeps going. So if we look at that, we're kind of already. Uh, we see a little bit about his personality and how it basically belongs in this part of the world. And yeah. he's trying to, but that's where he's trying to reconcile the two and it's not working. Yeah. yeah. And, and I guess, to, and I guess to jump off that quickly before we move on to other topics is look at how that is beautifully juxtaposed with his alcoholism, which is uh, basically concocted by, uh, by, by things that are from industrialization, uh, which are totally yeah. on the opposite end of nature, you know? That's a good point. Yeah. So, you know, I think he's almost using things like gasoline or something within his concoction. <laughs> paint thinner. Paint yeah, paint thinner. Yeah. But, but everything that derives from not just the time period that we were talking about post-industrial revolution, but it's derived from, uh, by means that are on the opposite end of that spectrum when compared to nature. And I think that actually shows him at war with himself in many ways too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's that. I mean, it, it could it be also if we look back to, um, you know, just for fun, Chaplin's Modern Times, you know, the, the idea that everyone's turned into an automaton. Could mm. he actually be using this gas in order to fuel himself forward? That's a very good. That's a, <laughs> I don't think I've ever been on a show that would have compared this film to Charlie Chaplin. So that is a, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. <laughs> and you will never be again. <laughs> There's a first time for everything. No, but I mean, just 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 from a, like a, a philosophical standpoint, I mean, Chaplin was 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 concerned with what was going on in the 30s, right? Just after that, mm. the 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 idea that we're, we're we're becoming machines ourselves, right? If Quell is a product of the Industrial Revolution or, or living the the impact of that, mm -hmm. and he's actually using you know what you were talking about in terms of what industries have been using. You'll have gas, you'll have paint thinner. If he's actually starting to drink this, yeah. Then ha isn't hasn't he become oh, part of the machine himself? He's part that's, of the system. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's that's exactly what. I, yeah, that that makes sense. You know, if he's trying to merge these two sides of reality, then of course he'll do whatever he, whatever humanity has concocted. He'll try and absorb it directly, and th that's his interpretation good of it. Point. That's brilliant. That's a good point. I like that. You know, to try to absorb it directly. Yeah. And even it goes back to the image that you were talking about at the beginning of the movie, right? If we get that first shot, it's been disturbed by something that was created by man, right? It's something that's mm. completely detached from what nature is. Mm -hmm. You know, that machine is going to be the boat. It it is yeah human. yeah exactly it is man made it's it is industrial in a sense right so yeah. there's a perversion of nature again you know something that Dodd does bring up while he's talking to. Uh, uh, what's her name? Miss uh, is it Drummond? I think uh, in New York City when they're at that party. I believe that's her name. You know, yeah, he, yeah. He's talking to John Moore. You know, the idea that everything has become perverted and we have to kind of go inside to to get yeah. there. Yeah, sure. Wow, 
So that's good. Cool. Uh, let's talk about that quickly, that, 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 uh, pick a point scene. I kind of enjoyed that scene quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that Brennan had a little something to say on that. I did. Uh, and, and that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie because I feel like that's the scene that actually epitomizes the actual development and growth for Freddie Quell's character and what his relationship with, not, not necessarily the cause was, but with Lancaster Dodd and the individuals that he met in his time with these individuals. Um, but in this scene, the pick a point scene, uh, Lancaster Dodd, who likes to create these sort of like pseudo games with his uh with his cult so to speak he has a group of individuals in this empty desert uh and forces them to get on this motorcycle and just pick a point and drive to it uh and when it gets to freddie qual's turn he chooses to drive off away from the desert away from the vast emptiness and back to where his old girlfriend used to live uh and which i think is a very interesting notion because it's actually the scene that I think actually that uh, epitomizes that whatever the cause was, it doesn't matter if it was something you could believe in and buy into or not. The point is that Freddie Quell was able to connect with people in a very different way by f maybe flocking towards something he didn't fully understand, which is very easy for someone in desperate isolation to do. Uh, so there's a very interesting psychological battle and debate that's going on there alone. But in his time that he spent with individuals that were indeed trying to build genuine love and compassion and assistance for him, it allowed him to start taking ownership in himself to do that for himself. And that was why he chose to pick that point. Uh, now, mm. it di unfortunately, does it work out for him in the, for the best? Not really. Uh, so it, it kind of forces him to then resort back to the man that he was when the film started, which is a very interesting uh, full circle that his character goes through in the entire duration of the film. But it creates a very good, interesting point how despite how you feel of these individuals of the cause there was a moment that Freddie Quell was maybe perhaps not past help. As Peggy, uh, Peggy's character says at one point, they think that he might yeah. be past help. Um, there is a point where they may have actually reached a level in him that was maybe for the better. I think it's actually kind of a heartbreaking look at how he does resort back when things don't work out, but there was still yeah. some potential hope for him. I would say, I, I would say, I would see it more, if we were looking at Quell, I, I was never under the impression Dodd really held any control over Freddy at any point in the film. I always sure. thought Freddy was still the ma his own master as such. He was fascinated by Dodd because Dodd held this sort of, uh, I, I would say some sort of connection that he desired, you know, yeah. in some shape or form. Uh, and to me, that scene, that was kind of like Freddy giving it one last shot, giving the cause their final test mm -hmm. to see if Dodd really did have any of the answers he required. Uh, so when he picks his point, I, I think that's perfect what you're saying, is that when he goes straight back to that, that uh, his, his old love, and yeah. uh, he really wants to try and get that to work, we're kind of seeing him follow his intentions through with the cause to find that sort of that point in his past to connect with and, and yeah. see and try to test what Dodd is saying about him improving his life through this mean. So we see him take it on board. And this is really the first action he ever does that really shows that he is, has taken something from the cause and pushed it onto his own life without their control, direct yeah. involvement. Yeah, exactly. So he's decided to see, well, has it worked this far? And he goes there, and you're right, with this sense of heartbreak and this disappointment that shatters him. He does still play the game because he does go back to Dodd. You know, it's it's a belated response. He's in the cinema, uh, but he gets 
either a phone call or this dream phone call, one way or the other, mm-hmm. uh, and comes comes back to uh, he finds him in England. Uh, so he does play the game to his extent, because but he doesn't rejoin the cause. He basically comes to address to Dodd one final time that it's not working mm-hmm. and he's going on his own path. And so I, I would say that we we when Dodd asks him, you know, if you can live without a master, let the rest of us know. He's kind of continually missing, as he has done throughout the story, that he has never been Freddy's master, and he and Freddy doesn't have a master. Yeah, Freddy is is in charge of himself. He is this person onto himself directionless as it might seem he acts by freddy's accord so when he finally comes to dodd and says you know basically i'm i can't be a part of this he just in his own way which is basically no <laughs> yeah um uh, that that is him play, he he fulfilled the test but it was the final but the real test was him testing the cause what it could do for him and he says it, it's not working and he cuts his ties there and forever with Dodd, and I thought that's 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 it is it is the pivotal point in the film regarding the arc of Freddy, and I think it's a brilliant one to draw attention to. Yeah, I agree, and I mean that that's one of the main questions I had after all this. If Freddy doesn't have a master, who is the master? Mm-hmm. Right? Throughout, the, throughout the entire movie, I mean, Dodd is the one they refer to as master, but mm-hmm. I was always under the impression that Peggy was the one pulling the strings. She was the ultimate master. Mm-hmm. It was either Peggy, or I'm going to say something that's completely out of left field, Peggy or the penis. That was the two That is that out of left field. Was... I didn't see that one coming. No, well, I, I actually think that's a great point because I think it actually adds some additional thematic layers to this film about the ideas of masculinity versus femininity. Uh, and I think that that's actually very deliberate in that regard too. Uh, but I, this scene though, as, you're t- as we're talking about in the film's climax where uh, Freddie Quill does say, you know, I, I, this is not working. I have to go my own way. I think it actually creates right. the uh, the moral of this of this story and uh, intentionally that you know we have to be the masters of our own lives and can't let anyone else govern them uh, for us. Uh, which is kind of unfortunate that Freddie Quill needed that uh, because of where he was, in, in, you know, with these feelings of isolation and depression that he was ultimately feeling post war. Uh, so in many ways, I think what's interesting is he found a time to almost take charge in his own life, only to resort back to it when things didn't work out. But it wasn't the cause that did that. It was simply the relationships with those that were actually willing to give him that love and attention that he hadn't quite received in too long. And I think that's actually the more important moral to take from this is just the idea of compassion for those who are of, you know, being tormented due to past traumas, whatever that might be, in this case being war, for example. Um, But it does also create a great warning about being the master of your own decisions, your own lives, your own choices, uh, and stand by those. Not that someone else can't govern them for you. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. But I mean, it's it's so easier said than done, right? Look at sure. Freddy. He comes comes back from the war, obviously, you know. And, and I mean, I don't know if you've you've watched John Huston's documentary, Let There Be Light. Uh, I can't say I have. No. Okay. Well, I mean, it's included as a as a as a bonus feature on the Masters Blu-ray. And mm. it's essentially a documentary that John Huston directed. And it was three parts that John Huston had to direct for uh, the U.S. military uh, post-World War II. And it, it was basically him showcasing uh, what post-traumatic stress was and all of the 
the, um, I don't know, the questions or all the symptoms that these guys would have. And mm. it was really interesting because Anderson uses a lot of the questions that they were uh, saying, but he also uses some of the dialogue that the military was saying, you know. So Freddy, when he comes back from World War II, they tell him at the beginning of the movie that, oh, hey, you can get yourself a, a farm, you can open a business, mm. all these promises of things that, you know, will probably go unfulfilled. Freddy... Yeah probably doesn't have the 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 know-how or the energy or even just the 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 the, the how could i put aspiration it? there you go to mm. maybe find that 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 courage to go forward and 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 do those things and i mean if there's like we were talking about earlier if there's no land left to conquer where the hell is freddy supposed to go right where yeah, is he going to open true. his shop and so i mean this is a very disillusioned man that we're getting not only is he suffering from ptsd <clears throat> he's suffering from direction obviously he's going to latch on to someone like a like Dodd in order to go through this quest of self discovery, yeah. but could we blame a little bit of of misdirection on the part of the U.S. in failing to kind of give him the direction that he needed? I think we can, and I think that's a great point in helping to you know recapture the sense of time as we've been talking about earlier. This is a time when there is not any more land to conquer. Not and and I think that's actually a great point in reflecting that too, because everything that has been either conquered or decided has already been decided. So he's got to try and find a place in something that's already been pre-established already. So it's almost like a it's it's almost as though this this uh this speech that were given to these soldiers came too much too late in many ways. Uh so I'm not and, and I think it's actually a really uh unfortunate matter of events that he has to try and be told to do this at a time where uh so many things have already been pre-established for him and that's why he finds himself even more lost uh as a result of this. Mm -hmm. Right. And which brings me to a point that I want to get you guys' opinion on because Obviously, one of the main themes in Anderson's films is family. Mm -hmm. I was I was just thinking of the the sort of uh, the tangent of the previous PTA films that we've sort of seen, where it's it's mostly about finding family in in certain places and 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 the the conflicts you can have with family and the certain relationships that you're sort of you're you're forced into because family is all that sort of all-encompassing thing. So we kind of look at somebody this time who genuinely has nothing because he doesn't have these relationships at all. And we're kind of thinking it's kind of a, a recap, it's a reframing, I would imagine, of a lot of what uh, Anderson did with uh, Boogie Nights in finding the, the surrogate family. Mm -hmm. I mean, before we had had this time where... We fi finding family in weird places, and it was kind of played uh, like a risky sort of comedy in, in Boogie Nights, and that um, he finds it in the porn industry, and it's quite a quaint notion, you know. But it doesn't it doesn't establish like the conflict. It doesn't. There are conflicts with that family, but they're they're more based on the scenario of the porn industry than they are on the actual family themselves. You know, it's more about the rise and fall of that industry and the family sort of shaped around it. This time it's more about the pressures we put on ourselves within the family. Uh, once you join a surrogate family, you know, and, 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 and it's weird because that's essentially what cult is, uh, especially in the sort of the play with the uh, Scientology and stuff. They become this very closed gated community. So we're looking at family from a, a religious issue, you know, a, a sort of ideological standpoint this time. The surrogate family isn't based on the, on career and compassion. It's based on a, a shared interest this time, you know, something that was shared loss even, where we don't know where we're supposed to be, so we all connect on the thing. We're all hoping 
for something to bring us forward. And the conflict sort of spins out of that. So it's kind of like Anderson's trying to pick apart family once again in another weird direction. But this time, it's he seems to be cutting it closer to these real families that had established themselves based on their sort of religious choices. Yeah. And then how do they fall apart as such? And it's because, much like what Freddy goes through in the film, it's that expectation to fall in line or fall out. Dodd puts the ultimatum on him. You know, oh, we yeah. see we see the idea, you know, if you leave this time, you leave us forever. That idea that that family isn't thorough. It's not structured like real family because ultimately they can leave you and you can leave them. Mm-hmm. That's It's more akin to a partnership than it is a family. And that uh, here we're kind of looking at Anderson kind of deconstructing that side of familiar relationships and saying that's not real family it can look like family it can feel like family it can take the place of family but only if you give 100 percent to them and their reasoning and if you can and because as humans we shouldn't be so connected to others as as anderson always tries to drive our individuality that's these these characters are always at odds with whatever the the source of the narrative is we're looking at, once again, one character who just can't fit in. And mm-hmm. what will happen in this case is that he'll be dejected and excluded to the end of time, basically. And that's it's a pretty, you know, it's he kind of really tears it apart. <laughs> yeah. He does deconstruct that very well. And I think it's another interesting moral to this film about what being a family really is all about and how nothing can really you know, ultimately replace genuine human connection. And I think on the surface, Mm. there are a lot of parallels to this film with Boogie Nights, as you were talking about, Lee, and how you kind of look at, uh, you know, you know, being, you know, this, this uh, porn industry is like this quote unquote surrogate family for the Dirk Diggler character and how the cause here acts as this like quote unquote surrogate family for Freddie Quell. But Mm. I actually think Boogie Nights represented this as an, a, more of an authentic family. I think that there was actually love yeah. and compassion among these group of individuals, where in The Master, definitely. I think there's definitely more of, maybe maybe a little bit of an artificiality in their in their form of human connection, where it was more about purpose and partnership, as you were saying, uh, versus authentic human connection, and it was more about proving a point in certain ways. But I think that's also part of the point of the film, and how Freddie Quell was still easily flocked and accepted by this in a time of need for himself, which is why he still embraced him at this time of isolation and depression. So it shows how vulnerable he was at this state in his life, and how he was able to be easily influenced by it, and and whether or not he believed it or not is beside the point. I think he was more gravitated towards the idea that someone was willing to give him the attention that he so wanted to be able to receive and then reciprocate on others. The irony is that it wasn't really the most authentic of familial ties in many ways, which is ultimately what forces him to choose to pick that point in, you know, trying to reconnect with his old flame in many ways because that's what he ultimately desired. It just took this experience to, I guess, uh, you know, demonstrate that and teach him that in many ways. But there's an interesting dichotomy yeah. when you compare that to Boogie Nights. Yeah, definitely. I, I, did you ever see the, the documentary that came out? I think it was last year, Going Clear. And it was the the sort of the Scientology documentary about I these have people not. who... It, it, it's, it's a really great film. Uh, and it shows these people who uh, sort of get out of, of Scientology and, and they discuss very, very frankly how they got in. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's strange because it, it goes into how the, the, the Church of Scientology actually preyed upon those who were most vulnerable in life, who were mm. the most directionless. 
and uh, and invite it and give them that sense of family, you know, that sense of we're here all in it together. So that's it's really great. I I think that really what you're saying it does tie into that, yeah, it, it, that that very um, connected idea of family. But it it and this is Anderson breaking down that artificiality as you were saying, yeah. that uh, they kind of put there in, for you to connect to. Uh, it's not firm. It's not grounded like the one in Boogie Nights. That's why it falls apart as juxtaposed to Boogie Nights. Yeah. So that's I, I think that's entirely right. Absolutely. I mean, Gibney's film, I mean, going clear that you're talking about really, really emphasizes the fact that these people are directionless. Yeah. They have no yeah, idea where exactly. they're going, right? And so I, that's why I understand a little bit of why, you know, we were talking just before the show about why Anderson would have actually chosen somewhat the cause, making it a little bit of a reflection of Scientology. I, I do think, just just to comment on something like that, too, what I think is very fascinating about this film and what Paul Thomas Anderson does overall, uh, and just this is more from a general sense, is you can watch this film and view it as a commentary on Scientology, and the, and the film still has the, has the potential to work in that regard, but if you choose not to look sure. at it in that regard, the film still also works. So you have a choice in how you also want to try and view this film. In many ways, this is a film that kind of reminded me of a film I saw earlier this year. One of my favorites of this year was uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch, uh, and, and, and cer in yeah. certain ways in how that deals with religious fanaticism and hypocrisy. You can look at it in that regard directly, but you don't have to. And if you look at it from the side of a familial uh, bond between these individuals and how that's ultimately broken, the film still works in its own regard. And I think The Master is another interesting example of that, more of a reflection of human connection and the times more than anything else. I, I, it's, it's a fascinating outlook. I think that's 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 a perfect con uh, that's a perfect connection to make. That's one Jason's not going to have seen because it's it's a scary film. It's a... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Well, uh, that was my next question before we head into more Master stuff. Is The Witch scary? Because that's it. I know my girlfriend loves horror films. It's it's scary like Shining scary. Yeah. I'd say it's it's far more about the atmosphere and craft than there's no jumps whatsoever. It is dread, yeah, inescapable dread, and I loved it for that. Are there fucked up images? Is what I'm asking. A few. Oh yeah, but I mean, not like they're 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 led up in a very conventional sense, so we're not too surprised by them. They're just a little uh, creepy. Yeah. I might I might offer that as a Christmas Christmas present to my girlfriend. Like put myself through that because, like I said, <laughs> it's worth it. It's one of the best films of the year. Well, yeah, I, I agree. And it, before we get, is it worth me not sleeping for weeks? That's the what I'm trying to get. At. There <laughs> were one, I, I'm not a big horror guy either, and I I absolutely loved it. So I mean, I'd say it's All worth right. the shot. <laughs> I, I will say this before we get back into the master, uh, Jason. Your knowledge that you were talking about earlier with uh, your opening thoughts on the master, with these uh, ideas of you know that the, the uh, Englanders flocking over to our colonies and bringing their ideas of Puritanism with them. Uh, the witch, right. the witch is ultimately that story before the Salem witch trials ever began. So there actually is a bit of that historical angle to it that you might appreciate yeah Ooh, okay i like that that'd yeah. be good it's it's not uh, directly so historical in that regard but it does uh talk about this uh this uh idea of puritanism at this time uh in, in a very historical light mm -hmm. okay because when I, I saw the images a little bit and it reminded me of um oh what's his face anyway uh, the, the movie the white ribbon oh uh, yeah Michael Haneke. To, there you go haneke and um I was like, okay, I tried watching that one and I was like, this boring, I turned it off. <laughs> but I, the witch, the witch seemed to be a little bit more like when I watched the trailer, I was like, this is creepy as shit. I'm going to probably end up like having to trailers are always a bit, they try to lure in mass appeal. So you're never going to get a full, you're never going to get the real sense of the film. It's nothing mm -hmm. like the trailers that I thought I was going to be seeing. 
what you thought you were going to be seeing. It's nothing like that. It's nothing so dependent on its scanners. It's more about the relationships it's talking about. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's a smarter film than that. I have to evaluate on how many sleeping pills I'm going to need. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, but I told my girlfriend, I said, like, listen, I don't mind watching something like that with you, but you're not allowed to fall asleep before I do. So, <laughs> so, anyway, so oh, heading back towards the master and that, that that's me. That's me suffering from post-traumatic stress. I mean, I, I, I had uh, earlier this year for Halloween, I mean, a month and a half ago, I was doing a horror for wimps with Sarah Buttery. Oh, I had yeah. fun, you know, and I, and I explained a little bit in that what had happened to me uh, was Dawn of the Dead. I watched it when I was eight years old without doing it on purpose. Mm. I, I can uh, walked in on my girl, my not my girlfriend, sorry, on my babysitter, uh, who was watching that in the middle of the afternoon, and I saw that stabbing in the ear scene oh, with man. a zombie, and it just kind of screwed with me, and so. <laughs> I can't get into recovered. horror that much. No, I haven't. You know, I, I go to. I, I I hate the dark. You know, so I, I think I think. Do you that sleep with a nightlight? To... No. <laughs> there was a small pause there. Like, how do, do I want to lie about that? <laughs> I don't. I don't sleep. With, I don't sleep with a nightlight. However, I will. Oh Christ! I will hold in having to go to the washroom until the next morning. Oh, oh God. man, <laughs> that's cute. But anyway, oh, thank you, Brandon. So. I love it. He just said that was cute. I feel like a man now. <laughs> what? Did you tell him I sleep next to the door? Yeah, I put my girlfriend next to the door. Oh wow, you're so you're, you're under, a tough protector. She's under threat first. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, is that oh Christ, this is funny. I, I put her next to the door because it gives me something to defend. I, I'm not afraid of having to stand up for someone, yeah. but if I'm the only person being attacked, <laughs> then it's a total different scenario. That's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's fair. That's, that's a fair point. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm saying. Get Never off thought of my it that lawn way. style, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, speaking of post-traumatic stress, I want to steer the conversation a little bit towards that because, I mean, The Master is definitely a film about PTSD. And I think that Anderson kind of wants to explore it uh, not not just in terms of the condition that Freddie's doing, but how the condition itself has affected society in a philosophical manner in the U.S. You know how people have gravitated towards gurus and leaders to help them <clears throat> develop as individuals, uh, but to as we see in the master, rather uneven ends. So I don't know what what is your take on the PTSD. I'll get into my stuff after, uh, so that I could just I don't want to just launch into my long ass spiel because I have notes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm I'm interested in how it resolves in the in the film because if we um, if we see Freddy as obviously this sort of PTSD incarnate in the story, and uh, and his search to sort of well not so much his search more Dodd's search to rehabilitate him where it's it's freddy's search to sort of i don't know recover to an extent i suppose if we see where it ends where he sort of goes his own way leaving the cause i i, I wonder what anderson is saying there about these 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 sort of churches and these ideals that were that try to do their best to cure ptsd quote unquote and we look at, at dodd and he sort of if if the cure if the cause can't fit, cure him we haven't failed Freddy. The cause has failed Freddy. Something like that. Um, right. I'll, I'll be talking about that in a minute. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested to think about um, what that means about, you know, does it say from Anderson that he doesn't believe that 
PTSD can find a place here, or does it show, and or does it show that PTSD is, is, is something that still plagues society as this sort of thing that we still suffer from today? Because if we think about when this film was released, and you know, and it was still in the same decade of nine uh, eleven. You know, it's probably, there's a lot to, to tie in there with the kind of, the same pressure of these people, these, uh, these American people were still suffering from this new form of PTSD, one that had brought it straight to the home. Yeah. And, and these, uh, Anderson's looking at it and looking at a parallel of World War Two, showing this character who, um, who's still suffering and could not find hope in a church and moves past it. Is he kind of saying... Look at this. This is the similar scenario. Don't fall into the same pattern. You know, PTSD can't be fixed this way. Or is he saying that PTSD, as a culture, we can never get past because it we uh, the American culture that it's so endemic now. It's so a part of who we are that we have to just live with it. Like Freddie lives with it. Mm. He does find a way to live with it. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, he kind of semi embraces it by the end. Yeah. He kind of resorts back to the man he was at the very beginning of the film, which is why I love the final shot of the film, because it actually goes back to him in the very beginning of the film on that beach with the, uh, the, the, the naked lady sandcastle of sorts. That's kind of made there. Uh, I think, I think all of this, as far as the morale or the moral of what Anderson may be getting at, as far as, if there is a potential cure for PTSD, I think actually goes back to these notions we were already talking about regards to family uh, and authentic human connection, I think is ultimately what he's trying to get at from from the film, I guess, from a moral standpoint. And uh, that's something that even though Freddie felt like he was getting that with his experience with the cause and the relationships he may have developed with those individuals there that actually gave him the attention and time of day he was looking for, it wasn't authentic in, in the way that he ultimately needed, which is why he ended up resorting back as essentially an unchanged man. And I think that full circle of an arc is very key in representing that. Um, and as far mm. as maybe what Anderson might be saying, as far as, uh, you know, maybe some of the root causes of PTSD, uh, I think that goes back to our, uh, you know, the example of that scene where these soldiers are given certain direction of what they, what they can do and what they can accomplish. And for those that maybe not have uh, a specific, uh, you know, relationship or an agreement with the war that they are fighting, some of that direction may feel almost directionless. So they almost become like they feel like lost souls in certain ways. And I think a lot of these individuals oh, yeah. may feel like that. Um, even going hand in hand with some of these ideas about masculinity versus femininity. It's a very male-driven uh, group that they are with, uh, which I think is also one of the other root causes of his uh, sexual desires and his sexual urges, uh, which become even more strengthened because of his time spent with such a male-dominated community. Yeah, I mean, it's great because I love the fact that you're pointing it out. Look at the beginning of the film, right? The fact that you have these men wrestling on a beach yeah. against themselves. You know, there's this this primal urge in order to conquer, yeah. right? They, you'll, they resort back to this 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 very, how can I put it, primitive behavior where they're actually just there wrestling each other kind of a old gladiator style in yeah. a sense, right? We're just missing sure. out on the weapons, but... You know, even Freddie at one point decides that he might actually, instead of fighting other individuals, he might inflict pain on himself when he actually brings the machete down on his hand. Yeah. Maybe testing to see is like, should I, is, is, is the pain that I'd feel from chopping my hand off better than what I'm feeling now is what I got from what he was doing there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Having thought about that, that's, that's pretty on the nose. <laughs> I think it got it's it right weird. there. Yeah. But you know, 
And, you know, what I wanted to steer towards is basically like a bit of the visual language that, that uh, uh, Anderson uses in order to talk about PTSD. And I just want to set it up. It's a long setup, but it'll pay off in the end, hopefully, and we'll be able to kind of get something from this. And sure. it goes back to when I was still in university and I was taking a master's seminar and I was studying Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, which is also a book about post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about the firebombing of Dresden. And Vonnegut, who is the survivor of that, decided to write a book about it. And the thesis that I had in my, the article that I had to write was that uh, Vonnegut incorporated fairy tale aesthetics to communicate how his main character, Billy Pilgrim, was suffering uh, from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I mean, if we look back to what Lee was saying just a minute ago, I mean, we're still in a, a, in a post-9-11 world right now. Look at the amount of fairy tale movies that have come out since post-9-11, post-9/11 mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Fairy tale reassessment and all that. Here, superhero uh, films are, are, are still acting on that. There are the new fairy tales for us as well, incorporating science fiction into it. And what I wanted to say is that while I was uh, writing my article, there was an article that I had to read uh, that was entitled Diagnosing Billy Pilgrim, A Psychiatric Approach to Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. And it was written by scholar Suzanne Vies Giuliani. Uh, now, in her article, she basically extrapolates on how he is really suffering from post-traumatic stress. But she borrows two terms from two other scholars that I really liked. And one of the terms was from uh, Jerome Klinkowitz. Um, and the term that he uses to describe a, the psychological condition that Billy Pilgrim has mm-hmm. or what who, what soldiers have during the war is that they're living in a continual present. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she, uh, Giuliani kind of pushes her argument just a little bit farther by uh, citing another one called another scholar called Judith Herman. And she, Herman's uh, research is more along the lines of, uh, uh, prisoners that oh, sorry uh, soldiers that have become prisoners of war that actually were were, were trapped by uh, the opposing forces of the, the the forces that were fighting against mm-hmm. and what she would do is basically when these guys were in their cells she explained it as these guys that are reduced to living in an endless present so you have the concept of the continual present and the endless present now what i did on billy pilgrim and what, what i'm going to shift towards freddie in this case is that um the endless present that Freddy is actually going through in the master is that of the war. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And because of the trauma he experienced, he's confined to this past psychological representation of himself, of himself. And as a result, he experiences past, present and future as the person he was during the war. And that I think goes to explain why he doesn't age in the film. You know, mm. he's constantly right. in and out of dreams, right? But he always looks mm. the same. I mean, look at when he's actually sitting on the bench with Doris. Yeah. He's still hunched yeah, over. Exactly. At least seven, eight years of the past, he looks exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly, right? So he's basically, well, I won't call it time travel, although it could apply, seeing as that he is talking to Dodd at that point. And if mm. we use what John Moore says, he says like time travel hypnosis therapy. <laughs> he mm. calls it like that. I think that, in this case, it, we could make a case that Quell himself is actually uh, really, uh, how can I put it, living the, these these instances as the person he is at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Now, the imagery that I wanted to point to um, is the second shot of the film, which I think is, how can I put it? Well, the shot itself is is Freddy. It's a really a good, cl- I mean, on a big screen, this shot was beautiful. It's <laughs> closer. I, I was sitting in the theater. I saw this this movie two days in a row. I went uh, with uh, alone 
to watch it. And then the next day I was talking to my friend, um, Pierre-Olivier Belzil, uh, who has actually listened to the podcast. I'm hoping he's listening to the master. So big shout out to you. Mm. Uh, he said, have you seen the master? And I said, yeah. And he says, oh shit, I was looking for someone to go with. And I was like, fuck it. I'm going again. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And that, that, that shot right after the water, we see him. It's a close up shot where we actually get, um, Freddie's helmet and the helmet itself is just, just above his eyes, but there's a, there's a wall where you just see his mm. eyes. He's hiding behind that wall. And I think the wall, what Anderson's trying to do in, when he's shaping that image is that he's trying to show uh, Freddy's psychological confinement during that period in time. Mm-hmm. And he uses that wall that's hiding Freddy and he, he, he recuperates, recuperate, sorry, he recuperates it a little bit later in the film at Helen's house. At this point, Dodd is putting Freddy through a new form of processing where he has him walking from a window to a wall. Now, Freddie, as he's doing this, he refers to the wall as plainly a wall. He can't get out of it, right? He punches it repeatedly. He's never being able to get through it or bring himself psychologically to see anything beyond the wall Mm -hmm. that it is. Now, even the window is something you can see out of, but he only manages to kind of get through it or traverse it once. You know, I think that he says that he can touch anything he wants. He can touch the sun. He can touch something. Uh, you know, he's just kind of rubbing the window in a way. Uh, you see him a little bit earlier trying to touch it. And you, you have a feeling that he's back on the beach trying to kiss a woman again, trying to grab the breast. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But a little bit later when the processing has seemingly worked a little bit, he, he's actually touching the sun and touching the neighbor's house. But, this is the weird thing is that going from the wall to the window is essentially what Herman and Klinkowitz are referring to as this endless present, mm. this continual present. And I think that Anderson is trying to show us that this is exactly what PTSD is, is walking from one point in a place to the other without necessarily going anywhere. Yeah. And during that sequence from from the the wall to the window, you get these flashbacks again, and the flashbacks are all to the war. You'll have Freddy just kneeling down, hiding behind his hands again, creating a wall with his hands, trying to light a cigarette. You'll have also um, him on the beach with a sandwoman, which recuperates the imagery of the final shot that you were talking about, Brendan, a little bit earlier. And is also reading a letter, which I can only assume is a letter, either it's the one he wanted to send to Doris or it's the letter he re- letter he received from Doris, mm-hmm. and so that really is Anderson showing us visually what PTSD is like for Freddie. Yeah, and I thought it was a very, very wonderful and masterful way, no pun intended, yeah. of actually <laughs> trying to showcase uh, the, the the wonder. Uh, 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 well, his wonderful craft, anyway. Anderson is a, as a very potent filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, exactly. it's basically this like this like inescapable present or this inescapable sense of time is what he's providing there. And I think that's even, you know, emulated further by the opening shots of this film with this sense of emptiness and isolation by the uh, open water that, that we talked oh, about yeah. earlier. I think there's a lot of visual symbolism to that too. And then what I love so much about the scene you're talking about specifically with, you know, the wall to the window moment, which is, I, I agree. It's, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie for everything that you're talking about. Uh, but what I, what I think is very deliberate on Anderson's part is how, on one side is simply a blank wall with no view past it, where the window actually has a viewpoint uh, past it then. And there's a mm. great moment where Freddie Quell uh, finds himself like against the window, and it's almost like he's sucking on it. You know, like like he's yeah, yeah. Yeah, like he's literally trying to suck his way through it because that's the side that he's 
uh, hoping to try and, you know, see a future for himself and to try and reach for that grass, but there's something there that's blocking his way towards that. So, on one hand, it could be seen as the wall as being, you know, the uh, avoiding the potential help that you could be, uh, you know, finding yourself towards where the win like where that. the window is hope, you know, the, the, and, yeah. and the potential for that hope. Uh, and, and I think that that's a great representation of that symbolically, too. And I want to build on what you're saying there, because if we're taking the same exact window, Anderson at one point, while Freddy is still walking inside, he'll have that same window where Freddy is actually walking alone inside. And you can see Dodd on the other side of the window where the curtains, there's about an inch. Mm -hmm. There's just about an inch open in the curtains where you can kind of see a little bit through the curtains. Yeah. But he's framed Dodd dead center. And I feel like those curtains closing are basically Anderson saying that soon, you know, trying to get that hope, his hope is not going to be through Dodd. It's actually mm. closing. He's going to have to yeah. find another way to break through that that window, and it's not going to be with Dodd. Dodd is already on the other side, yeah. and Freddy's going to eventually have to find another way. Yeah, out. yeah, that's a great point. That it's that it goes back to that. It's inescapable by that point, but you could still visually see the the other side of that that you hope to achieve. But there's something there that keeps closing in on you that basically adds to that sense of claustrophobia that's inescapable. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one last thing I wanted to build on is what Lee said earlier a little bit. Uh, you know, the the sentence that you mentioned, if if, if the cause isn't helping Freddy, right, it's the yeah. cause that's failed him. Yeah, sure. And I thought that was kind of really interesting because I feel that if we're looking at, at how Dodd might represent the future of America by digging into its past, okay? I think that if we look at it in the fact that the United States has lost its direction at that point in terms of how to help people get forward uh, emotionally or psychologically, you know, they, they've paved the way financially and all that, and mm -hmm. they've become a, a, a juggernaut in, in terms of, um, oh, how can I put it, technological advancement and science and whatnot, yeah. but yet the people... The people have been left behind a little bit. Sure. And I think that Dodd uh, embodies the loss in direction post-World War II that America has suffered, you know. Uh, everyone's looking for answers, but they're all coming up short. And I think that it's exemplified in Dodd's novel, you know, that split saber that's being buried out in the desert. It's a wasteland where nothing grows and like not even ideas. Yeah. His book is shit, you know. A lot of people <laughs> think his book is crap. <laughs> and... In a sense, if we look at what Brendan was saying, you know, with the, the window, that hope, Dodd has failed Freddy, yeah. you know? He's, mm. And if you want to transpose that onto the American landscape, he's failed the U.S. And as a result, the funny thing is, is that Dodd heads back to where it all started. Mm -hmm. He moves to England. He's been rejected by the United States. He's decided to use his approach to philosophy or, or religion or cult and try to colonize England as a result. And he seems to be doing okay. Even his son has come on board at this point. Yeah. But it's kind of weird because now we have the United States as a whole suffering from PTSD going back to where it all started in order to start it all over again. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think Anderson's theme of PTSD goes farther than what the soldiers were experiencing, where he tries to transpose it on the American landscape, where it's basically now we're talking about a complete loss of direction. Yeah. You know, in terms of family, in terms of uh, the person itself, you know, the introspection can go deep. But how deep do we go until we realize that, shit, this is all empty. We have no idea where we're going. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think I think that's a very interesting point, and I think it's actually a really a really great way to actually 
not maybe not necessarily create a relatability to what Freddie Quell is going through, but at the same time, it helps further enhance that this film, much like There Will Be Blood, is a representation of American ideals and American personas at this time, and it's mm. what many of us at that time may have potentially been going through. So he also, very much like how he uses Scientology as a crutch to define what the cause was, he uses PTSD to help uh, define the American mentality uh, and that emptiness that they're feeling. So it's very deliberate in that regard too. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, one last point I want to bring up and then I want to switch this over to Lee quickly is the, uh, the nice ode that Philip Seymour Hoffman sings to, to Joaquin Phoenix at the end. You know, you'll have Lancaster Dodd singing like, I'd like to get you on a sh slow boat to China. There's a lot of, um, you know, from what I've, read you know in terms of of, of uh criticism on uh, the master no one seems to know what to make of the song and i wanted to get you guys' impression i have a little bit of notes here but i wanted to know what 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 do you guys think is going on in that scene it, it seems to leave uh, left a, a lot of people perplexed me too <laughs> <laughs> me three <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, I guess I mean I, I I could take a stab at it. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to recall all the lyrics to the song right now, which is kind of my struggle at this point. Uh, but but I do think that there is an attempt to 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 humanize uh, Dodd's attempts to basically be that master for Freddie Quell. At least when you look back at his time that he spent with him, that maybe that he did have a desire to build an intimate and maybe not intimate, but a human connection with him. Uh, and he's maybe deliberately trying to tell Freddie that if he chooses to walk, this is you failing to acknowledge what we are trying to provide you. Even though deep down uh, Lancaster Dodd has, he hath too much pride, if you will, that he, uh, he, can't seem to realize that what he is providing for Freddy as well as his own followers was an artificial connection more than anything else, but can't seem to come down to that. And this is almost his way of directly saying, if you leave, I'm not here to provide for you anymore. You know, I'm not going to be your, I was going to say shepherd, but I'm not going to be your captain because I think that's actually a better boat analogy to make in mm. that regard. So that's, that's really, yeah, yeah that, that's kind of my spur the moment look upon it. Like I said, I, I'm trying to recall all the it's lyrics not too bad. to this. Up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I have them right here for you. I have like the first verse if you want. Okay. It says, I won't sing it. So sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll accept you for that. That's fine. I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China. All to myself alone. Get you and keep you in my arms evermore. Leave all your lovers weeping on the faraway shore. So that would be the opening verse of, of uh, what Frank Losser written. It came out in 1948. Yeah. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think okay. that that's the perfect way to read it. Uh, because from based on my research, Frank Losser uh, had no idea that this was a, an idiomatic expression to begin with. Hmm. I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China was actually used, used in poker circles. And it was a refer. It was a reference to a a player that loses steadily all the time. Is a guy that never really is able to win anything, and so he's seen as a failure. Okay, right. And the funny thing is, is that you put your finger right on it. You know, Frank Losser is singing a song. He's turned it into something that's a bit romantic. So anyone who wants to see that scene as 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 uh, Dodd serenading you know, um, Freddie, mm -hmm. then you're like, okay, cool. They're going through a bitter divorce. This is the end of their <clears throat> marriage, you know, and there's threats that are thrown around. But at the same time, like you said, Brendan, and it was very brilliant what you said, you know, I'll spur the moment. Oh, I appreciate we'll it. Off to you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it basically is that we, if you choose to go the other way, then you're going to be a failure. 
Hmm. That's exactly what it is. We have bet heavily on you. And if you choose to go, then it'll be your loss, not ours. Sure. And it's great. But if he's the one with the poker hand, isn't he? He could also be commenting on how he's lost the gamble. You know, that this, Absolutely. this was his attempt That's and the the, this is his last plea with this song is that, you know, you see I'm holding my hand out. You know, this is this is the cards I hold. Don't you see I'm playing the long game? Join me, you know? Hmm. It could be that, you know, he's asking Freddy to make that journey across the sea as they once did at the beginning of the film, right? Yeah, right. And he did. Yeah. You know, he says, follow me on this journey again. Let's get back on that boat. Yeah, they, right. they each have their own play, uh, hands to play, if you will. And I think that's actually very much a, a response to that. And they seem to acknowledge that as well. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Now, I wanted to throw this over to Lee. Just to finish off what you had to say about it, sir. Is there anything else? Well, that you that's had? I, I want. I, it's it's something I'll I'll, I'll get round to commenting on because I think that's pretty interesting. And in my this week's crackpot theory, we we do like our crackpot theories, and this is my I'm going to be doing an, an alternate reading of the film because I didn't really focus on PTSD. Uh, I, I instead focused on a totally different sort of reading in um, hedonism. <laughs> and I wanted to ah, good stuff. And I wanted to use that uh, to talk about Anderson and his commenting on where he stands in his career at this point after making the master. So uh, it's 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 not it's uh, we'll see. It's crackpot anyway. We we we've done crackpot before. I think we do crackpot every week when it comes to Anderson. So I mean, <laughs> it's usually me. So yeah, I'm doing yeah. great today. <laughs> Well, exactly. So, uh, so I wanted to look at the binary conflict again because God help it, poor Anderson. He he sure loves his binary. Even if you're talking there about the the uh, the continual present between the two walls, you know, if we even right. see, if we're looking at that as a binary itself. He he sure he sure uses that to, to open up his interpretive side of the films. Uh, so, well, let's indulge. <laughs> um, All right. So mm-hmm. I, I I wanted to look at it this time. I wanted to see in my eyes. Well, I, I wanted to look at him as a representation of hedonism uh, and in a base form. Uh, and in this case, I want to look at him as a Cyrenaic form of hedonism. It's like a school of hedonism, and I'll get into it. And I wanted to juxtapose it to utilitarianism, which is, in this case, represented by Dodd. So the Cyrenaics... Uh, this school, this thought process on how to live a hedonistic lifestyle, they believed that the ultimate goal of life, like most, like that typical idea of hedonism, is that the only good in the world is pleasure. And conversely to that, the only bad in the world is pain. So because life has pain, you know, it, it comes in tow with living. The best thing to do is to fill your life with as much pleasure as, as humanly possible, and therefore you'll sort of circumvent that. But they believe specifically in the idea of physical and sort of um, momentary pleasure, because they thought that was the strongest kind. So they felt that anything sensory, uh, it's something that you can experience yourself, and uh, and the firmest kind to do that is physical. That's how you obtain the most pleasure. So if we look at that, and we also see uh, they have this idea that Although you can get pleasure from physical contact and stuff like that, you also get it from altruism because helping people does come with its own sense of fulfillment and and, and, and pleasure. Hmm. We see this kind of reflective through Freddy because not only is he a sex-driven alcoholic, he's also, he's got this loose sense of duty. He goes to war is one thing, you know, a, a hedonist probably wouldn't put themselves for grueling war. <laughs> 
But if he sees a certain purpose in it that's going to be helping people, then you could see that he's maybe altruistic in a sense, that he's doing it for others. And he he's trying to get the pleasure out of that. On top of that, the Cyrenaics, Sir- they also believed in, or they didn't believe, more importantly, in this idea of knowledge gained through intellectualism as such. So they didn't believe necessarily in discussing and and conceptualizing philosophy and ideas on how to understand the world. They only really believed, and they only, in a skeptical way, they looked at life, if you can't sense it, if you can't experience it, firsthand then it's it's not worthy to accept into your life that's not true knowledge so the only way to really experience life is to go by firsthand account so that kind of plays into their need for sexual frills and stuff like that but it also shows a little maybe in freddy how he gets involved perhaps a little with the cause you know because he starts finding this allure through dodd you know it's 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 very first of all it's he's lured in by maybe ideas like the wedding that Dodd offers, uh, you know, to his daughter's getting married. So it's a sort of fun, pleasurable experience. Uh, so he's maybe drawn to that. Also, <clears throat> they share a passion for alcohol. So, I mean, there's, there's this kind of immediate connection that seemingly instantly Dodd plays to his base instincts. Mm-hmm. Dodd, on the other hand, though, he's more of a thinking man. And I saw him as a utilitarian. He looks to get from people what he can best in order to sort of benefit the world. So utilitarianism, they believe, because it's tied causably to hedonism, in that the ultimate goal of utilitarianism is the greater good, and good uh, encompasses pleasure to an extent. It's a positive experience, so what is good is ultimately desirable, and we want to condition ourselves to better head towards that direction, you know, try to encapsulate the pleasurable. So uh, we see Dodd here, he's trying to, he's looking at a man, perhaps misunderstanding him, who um, seems lost and of no use to society, and he's trying to rehabilitate him. He's trying to, because his way of seeing the world is that we can connect to ourselves in order to benefit and and sort of push past all the the pain in the world. He's looking at uh, the solution of how to fix the world, and he's very utilitarian on that, and he sees a little bit of that in Freddy. If he can cure this man of his sort of pre his animalistic preconceptions, he can ultimately save humanity from their own preconceptions. So, in this sense, he looks to control, manipulate, maybe, Freddy into these sort of experiments and so he leads him in at first by appealing to his more animalistic nature. You know, he compliments him on his on his farts. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he he lures him in with, with with drink, and you know, there's also this possible sexual thrill he'll get from um, Dodd's daughter. You know, they have this sort of semi on and off attraction that they kind of play with each other a bit. Yeah. So right. there's this there's this under level that we kind of were drawing and sort of bringing Freddy into the circle. But Freddy starts to lose... Um, he becomes disillusioned with the process. And we start to see this because Dodd starts involving his son-in-law. Mr. Robot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Robot. <laughs> <laughs> Who, uh, you know, he starts to see... Uh, it's it's more about then connecting with somebody else and their knowledge rather than the previous form of um, processing which was very self-inflective it's very about the experiences of freddy himself Mm -hmm. so he can connect with that because of the cyrenaic school he can in his thoughts 
connect with this idea that it, it belongs to him because he's experienced it. But it, when it comes to emphasizing with the son-in-law and trying to get reactions out of him and then processing against one another, he's at a loss, you know, and he starts becoming more upset and violent about the nature of the, of the processing. Especially as Dodd becomes more conceptual with his speeches, especially the ones about dehypnotization, he starts right. over-questioning uh, he starts losing his grasp of the of the point of his reasoning being in the cause. He's also approached by um, Dodd's wife to um, to detach from alcoholism, which again is one of his biggest draws. So he starts becoming more violent. We see these outbursts as he sort of struggles to get on board with the cause. He feels more caged at this point, and so we sort of see this sort of ultimately play out in that eventually Freddy pulls away and Dodd fails to recapture him because Dodd is in this sense trying to unravel Freddy. Freddy is this accomplished hedonist whose dissatisfaction with life spurns from his inability to connect with society and and its wants and Dodd is trying to force this side of, uh, of society on him, the uses of society so it has to rehabilitate him and eventually he kind of loses him and what do we get by the end of it? Well, Freddy is, he's left Dodd, and he's gone straight back to his old hedonistic ways, although with one ex one little minor change. While he's having sex with the girl in England, uh, he yeah. is repeating the process, mm -hmm. you know, that he initially connected with. So we're seeing that there is this impression left upon him by the end that Dodd has, has touched on, but at the same time, he's not using it right. He's not actually invested in what the girl's saying. It's almost it's like not... it's poking fun at it in some ways. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's he is a... Poking being a... the operative. Yeah. Uh... yeah, you see what I did there? <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, yeah, that's... He's, he's affected by it, and he's he is using it somewhat, but uh, it's he's not actually using it in the same way that Dodd would have used it. He's just sort of changed mildly by it. So, that was a long preconceptual... <laughs> <laughs> take on what I'm trying to get at. My point is, I wanted to apply this to Paul Thomas Anderson himself. I wanted to see what he might be trying to say, and what I got from it was that he was looking at his career path up to that point. He was looking at the sort of expectations there are from the filmmakers that he studied and the filmmakers that he admires to constantly embrace intellectualism as this this hierarching, this this notion that makes better films, you know, when we've seen it, he's he's embraced Kubrick's ideas, uh, and and uh, you know all these all these higher filmmakers like um, Scorsese, that's he, he pushes towards this sort of high end of intellectualism, mm -hmm. but I think what we're seeing through Freddy is Anderson's uh, sort of rebellion against the idea. What he's trying to say is that maybe this is only going to get him so far and then he's going to start pulling away maybe he he's realizing that it's time to have a little more fun hmm. you know to that if we look at intellectualism and it keeps going up eventually it's a it's a defeating end you know that we see for Dodd he can't rehabilitate the person the the the, the hedonist that just wants to have fun mm -hmm. he can impact him he can leave an impression but that hedonist is going to continue to be a hedonist and it seems like Anderson's saying, maybe I'm that hedonist, you know? Maybe I want to, from this point on, make a film, start making films that embrace a little less of the high concept stuff that he's been 
wormed his way into the into in his in his career and moved beyond that into something that's a little more uh entertaining to him uh a little more lowbrow if we've looked at paul thomas anderson's career up to this point he's made an entire filmography out of rise and fall films we've seen yeah. it in boogie nights we've seen it in there will be blood and magnolia you know these these films where people are at a certain point and they get to a height and then they collapse and if he's to start looking at his own work and taking it on board seriously he has to see that if this is the high then the low is coming so how does he adapt to that how does he avoid the the missteps that his own career has been constantly advising against well Maybe he, take, he moves away from these ideas of, you know, how and uh, all these greater examples of these filmmakers who tapered off into lesser films in, the, in, their, in their days critically and instead embrace a little more of what he enjoys and less about what, what is expected of him as such by society, about, uh, about critics and so on. So I thought that was like a fun thing. And, and regarding the slow boat to China, I think that makes a, a fun comparison. You know, if, he's, if, if this is the poker hand, you know, he's, he's got his <laughs> cards on the table and he's saying maybe now is the time to fold as such. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, that's awesome. Is, yeah, is there a time for a slow fine. clap right here? It's like <laughs> <laughs> this no, is really no, fucking it. analysis. Yeah. Jesus so Christ, that's, that's what I sat down and, and and did my um crackpot theory this week. <laughs> I guess that makes a lot of sense, especially uh, and you guys will probably talk about this in your next uh, retrospective episode. Uh, is Anderson's next film being a film that had maybe a little bit more levity to it in in, in regards to just having some mm-hmm. fun in the filmmaking side of things? Obviously, talking about inherent vice. Uh, so I guess that does help support that theory a little bit, and it's pretty interesting uh, the way, Lee, that you're talking about uh, heathenism, and maybe there is this sense of mold ability uh, with this kind of idea, idea that Anderson's trying to apply to maybe some of his own filmmaking, because... Uh, as a, I guess, you know, heathenism or looking upon it as a pagan, uh, especially when you look at There Will Be Blood, I guess you can almost argue Daniel Plainview is that representation. Uh, but uh, but oh, yeah, in the case here with The Master, if you look at Paul Thomas Anderson himself, he's kind of molding himself and trying to tackle very different things. So maybe, there is, maybe he's trying to say something about the moldability of and using heathenism as a representation of that because there is a sense of uh, a lack of belief when it comes to that, you know, the refusal to acknowledge yeah. certain things. Uh, so maybe there is that sense of being molded by other ideals a bit more easily, and maybe that could be for the good or for the worse in some ways, and maybe Freddie Quill's representation of both of those sides of that spectrum. But it's interesting when you apply that to Anderson's own career because he has tackled very different types of aesthetics in many ways, so maybe this is also a reflection of Absolutely. not just his own uh, filmmaking, but maybe his own beliefs in some ways. Uh, I believe he has said that he is himself a lapsed Catholic. Uh, so I guess at one time he he, he did uh, follow and believe in uh, Catholicism. Um, whether or not he acknowledges that or not, I think he seems a bit more... Maybe he, he's definitely someone that seems maybe a bit more open-minded to other uh, rooms of you know Christianity maybe, and maybe he doesn't follow one specifically or even chooses to follow any anymore. Uh, so maybe this is also uh, an open-minded reflection of his own uh, choice and beliefs to veer off into different paths in many ways. I, maybe that's where I saw this connecting Fred. I myself a lapsed Catholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I, oh, I know what he's going through. He's doubting his position yeah. in his in his work. So you can relate you know, to him in what that he regard. wants to do next. Yeah, yeah I've got that <laughs> connecting thread there. And this is where I like, oh, well, he's obviously talking about hedonism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I think you're right. And I think that Brendan pointed to something uh, in terms of inherent vice. We're definitely going to have to delve into that quite a bit because inherent vice is a story that uh, Pynchon wrote. He adapted it almost word for word from the book. Yeah. This isn't sure. from his own imagination. What he's interpreting is other person and another person's work. You know, if you look at There Will Be Blood and if you look at The Master, these are written, directed, and almost produced by Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. The next film is adapted. Yeah. Right? Like you said, it's a little bit more of a... Yeah, maybe he's become more disillusioned by his, you know, the progress his career has made. Now he's, he's like, hard-rooted into this idea where he has to continue. But if, even if we see There Will Be Blood on The Master, and we've talked a lot about the comparisons between the two, that we they're, they're kind of counterparts to the same story or a progression of the same narrative yeah. to an extent. Right. If we see that, and he's looking at his career, and the last two films he's made are so similar and connected, maybe he's starting to doubt what he can do outside of that you know and are you saying if he continues this thread this in his kubrick era where does he go next well you know kubrick didn't just make the same film over and over again you know mm-hmm. so he maybe some it's would, time some to would argue push that yes. well yeah of course of course yeah <laughs> but where do you go next and i i'm, I'm glad that because I, again obviously the point of the retrospective is i haven't seen these films i'm going one film at a time mm-hmm. and we're obviously getting to that point where i've seen enough of them though i can see how he's reflecting the same themes a lot of the way through so when we're getting to inherent vice the last one at time of recording that i haven't seen that there is that shift to sort of frivolity in the story that's that's all i wanted to hear (laughs) it's it's definitely there but i mean if 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 anderson is indeed reevaluating where his career is you know then we have somewhat of uh of uh maybe a hearkening back to scorsese if you look at how scorsese's career has been rather uneven Mm -hmm. you know you'll have his very very uh, interesting end of 60s beginning of 70s period that's very very good and then a little bit after that he decided to explore something completely different you know starting with New York New York and then heading in towards uh, uh, actually it would have started with the King of Comedy yeah. oh no New York New York was 77 yeah. King of Comedy was 82 what, 82 I believe it was 82. and but that's a great point because starting from New York New York onward a lot of his films especially in the 80s had a bit more of a playfulness to them he did a lot more comedies there especially being the King of Comedy then there was also After Hours After yeah, Hours um, um, yeah. the, I guess even though it's not really a comedy, but The Color of Money, the sequel to The Hustler, uh, had a bit more of a playful tone to right. it as well. So, And I think that's a great point because Scorsese is actually someone that has his own unique tone and aesthetic that he did in each individual decade. And I feel like he's kind of tailored that very deliberately. Uh, and it's also something very interesting you mentioned, Jason, about uh, you know with uh, Anderson and with Inherent Vice essentially being – you can almost argue his first ever real uh, adaptation of an existing novel or medium, which There Will Be Blood is also technically an adaptation of, yeah, of Oil. Oil by Upton Sinclair. Sure. But the thing is, it's really only an adaptation of like the first hundred pages of that book, and then he just utilized yeah, everything else a, to create his own unique original story. It's more of a it. reinterpretation. Yeah, so it's oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not really an adaptation like Inherent Vices, so maybe this is a neat way for mm-hmm. Anderson to start branching off into different types of territory, as we've been saying. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's exploration of, of um, well, I mean, Pynchon is arguably a cultural icon in the United States, sure. right? And he's a guy, I mean, Pynchon, I mean, sorry, Anderson has never hidden the fact that he is a guy that adores postmodernism. He, he adores yeah. the exploration that these guys have had, you know? And I, I think that, yeah, I think that we might be heading into something, you know? Like you were talking about, Brendan, earlier, his next project uh, tackling the fashion industry, going back with Daniel Day-Lewis. Let's see if that playfulness decides to carry on. Maybe there is a yeah. reevaluation that's going Maybe. on uh, at this point. Jesus Christ, man, I'm still in awe of what you just <laughs> talked about. This is fucking awesome. 
Jesus, what talk Good about it? I think we're, <laughs> we should close the show off now. We should just get the final, you know, the final. I've verdicts. exhausted I mean, my entire uh, debate with this film. <laughs> Obviously, there's so much more. That's the thing yeah. about that's exactly that what we kind of open with about the interpretive nature of the film, and that you can literally, like I just did, go at it from a like a completely left field angle and come out with some idea of like you know some connection to the end of it. So I mean, we could go on for days reevaluating every single plot thread that goes on in this film mm-hmm. and and debating imagery, but we'll be here forever. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, I think that. Uh, Okay, so let's just get into it. Final verdict. I mean, would you guys recommend this movie? Oh, absolutely. You told me earlier that you we can't keep, we can't keep your mouth shut usually, and you're going absolutely. Come on, give me a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I figured I figured we said it. Okay, yeah, um, ab- absolutely. Times two. No, I'm totally kidding. Uh, I, I, <laughs> Uh, no, I as I mentioned, I think uh, in Anderson's filmography, I would probably rank this third just behind Magnolia and There Will Be Blood, but mostly that's a biasness because I have seen those two films uh, first and they introduced me to Paul Thomas Anderson and were almost ultimately films that I would say changed my life in the way that I kind of viewed film in an art form. They, they came at very transitional right. times in my life as I was veering towards appreciating film in such a different way, so I have a bit of a biasness toward those. In fact... Magnolia and There'll Be Blood might be, at the very least, veering very close to my top ten favorite films of all time. That's how much I love those films. Uh, but but The Master definitely still sits very high in my, one of my favorite films of this entire decade so far. And we beat to death the uh, you know thematic notions of this film uh, very much. But just to quickly comment on some of the film, you know, aesthetically and just some of the craft behind it, it is so beautifully shot. Johnny Greenwood's score helps enhance the sense of paranoia and dread throughout when it needs to. Absolutely. Very, very much like There Will Be Blood. And I yeah. really wish that both of these films would have been, you know, recognized uh, for some Academy Award nominations for its best original score. Mm. Uh, and it's even kind of a shame that The Master wasn't recognized for its screenplay. It was recognized for its performances, but didn't quite get Oscar love for the nomination for its original script, which I thought is very unfortunate. And I think if it wasn't for Daniel Day-Lewis's portrayal of Abraham Lincoln, Joaquin Phoenix could have easily won the Oscar this year. Oh, definitely. Uh, Yeah, and you know know what? As much as I love Daniel Day-Lewis and what he brought to Spielberg's uh, Lincoln, I still kind of prefer uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance in this film for for a variety of different reasons. Uh, It's a very different type of performance. Uh, Maybe you can argue objectively one's better over the other, but I love what Joaquin Phoenix is doing here. It's so out of left field, and he literally disappears on screen in a very unique way. Uh, I love that about it, and the same can be said about Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, rest in peace, lost a great actor at too young of an age. And, you know, Amy Adams is continuing her trek of great performances, uh, even this year, too. Uh, you know, she's been doing very well, so she's great here, too. So just even the film on a surface level is still gorgeous, and there's a lot to admire here as well. It's it's a wonderful movie. Absolutely. Yes, uh, I love this film. And uh, not in the way where I hold anything back like There Will Be Blood. I genuinely love this film. I uh, I don't. It, of course, it's not for everyone. It's not that kind of film. But it, to me, I had a lot of fun reveling in the relationship between the two characters on screen, and also the atmosphere and the world it builds around itself. I found it totally enthralling. I loved the way it was shot. I loved that place and time it brought me to, and how it tore it to shreds. Because I really don't like 1950s America. I don't think anybody should. So <laughs> it's it's um. <laughs> 
pretty. I I uh, I had a great time watching the master, and I would say, I as far as uh, you know, obviously this is the continuing trend, and I, from what I'm gathering, Inherent Vice is not going to be my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. We'll see, because my favorite to date still remains Punch Trunk Love, which is still uh, I just connected with the most and had the most fun analyzing and looking at and think that it has the most experimentation to it that mm. that thrills me about film but the master slots neatly into a second place for me i just i adored it i would watch it again i don't know if i i mean it's one of those things i'll probably watch sporadically throughout the remainder of my life maybe not go back to it every year or anything like that but there'll be a time i'll go like you know what i'm in the mood for a place in time it's going to be the master. I, I, It's just mm. a, a great film, and I'm really glad we got to talk about it, and I got to see it thanks to the retrospective we're doing. So, absolutely had a great time. Absolutely. <laughs> Fuck off. Oh, I see. You're making fun of me now. I get it. He's doing no, that. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, I I have to agree with uh, both of you. I mean, this this is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, even There Will Be Blood. I mean, they're pretty much neck and neck. They're movies that I watch on a yearly basis, much to my mm-hmm. girlfriend's chagrin, because she's like, why the fuck do you like these people? <laughs> I, was, I don't know. I, 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 it's not an identification thing. It's just I really like how these are real films. You know, when you sometimes you'll sit down and you'll watch movies, you know, you'll You'll be distracted yeah. for a little bit of time. But this one, these 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 films challenge you. They they try to get you to see things just a little bit differently. And I find that that's the, the work of a true great director. I mean, you'll have sure. guys, like if we're talking about the Oscars, I agree with you, Brendan. These guys should have, uh, Anderson should have gotten a little bit more recognition. But look, look at all the best guys. Kubrick. Barely anything. I think he won. Uh, it was screenplay for Spartacus, if I'm not mistaken, something like that. Nor a nomination, you know. Mm-hmm. Wells, never. Hitchcock, yeah. never. You know, Scorsese won for The Departed, which to me is a fucking joke. You know, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I love that film, but it wouldn't be a top five Scorsese film for me. Oh, It'd be close, not. but I mean, I, I mean, I prefer some of his other works, especially. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's much more character development. Infernal Affairs was much more of an action film, whereas this one's more yeah. of a drama. Yeah. You know, I agree with that. But I mean, given that the Scorsese felt like a, just like, oh, well, we have to kind of give it to you now, right? Because people are going to mm. shit on us, which mm-hmm. is a bit weird. And Anderson is somewhere along those lines now. They will reward him with a nomination. It's like, oh, we see what you did there. But, you know, it's kind of like the Coens. It was a surprise for me when the Coens won for, for, um, for uh, No Country, no Country for, for Old Men. men. Oh, yeah. there, it was finally the Oscars were like well shit it's this or that what do we do now yeah. you know they, they, were they do that the... a lot where they, they award them based like it's a consolation prize more than anything else and you know I, yeah. I, I do love No Country for Old Men but again not my favorite Coen Brothers film I much prefer like uh, I, I prefer Fargo Barton Fink uh, even Inside Lewin uh, Davis like, hey, like that, speaking my language now yeah, yeah, yeah but that, I, that, I mean that's as much as I do love No Country it's uh, there's some I do slightly prefer over it but it's still a great film and I wasn't complaining when it happened that they did win no I wasn't complaining either the thing is is that to me it's not necessarily uh, what what uh, a Cohen film would feel like? There sure. are certain instances that are Cohen esque, but I mean, when you mention like Fargo and Barton Fink, and, and um, even what you call it, Inside Lewin Davis, those mm-hmm. are those are quintessentially Cohen. And when you look yeah. at No Country for Old Men, it kind of sticks out a little bit like a sore thumb. It's a fantastic yeah. film, but oh, yeah. it's definitely it has a little bit of the Cohen stamp, but it's not a flat out stamp on it, right? Right. 
And so I think that with the master, to me, Anderson has really tapped into something that I like, you know, looking inward, the, the internal struggles of man is something that I don't know if it's not something I relate to necessarily, but it's something that I'm attracted to in a way. I like the mm. deconstruction, looking inward, looking at, at how these things um, operate, you know, how, how it works in history, how we keep going mm. in loops. You know, it's a study, a cultural study, as well as a study of, of, of the human condition. And Absolutely. it really, really speaks to me. I get a lot more from a movie like this than from a, a lot of the movies that I watch during the year. So I guess that covers pretty much everything. Brendan, uh, Jesus fucking Christ, man. This is <laughs> such a charming individual to have with us. It's a pleasure to Absolutely. listen to you guys Aww. every week. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, I you. want you to just... Uh, uh, plug in your show thank you so much for accepting to come on and i know that jd is feeling a little bit bad right now but don't feel mm -hmm. bad man sometimes that's just the way that's the way things happen but i mean to us this is a gift to us and our show and oh, also man. i mean it, it's fucking cool to have you guys on with us uh, and just knowing the fact that you guys listen and now we're part of the circle of the conversation it's great this is beyond what we could expect in 2016 oh and you guys have great conversations too and i love what you guys have been doing with this retrospective it's really like the, the, the way you guys bring in almost literary analysis to films I think is something that is kind of missing within our podcasting circle and I love that you guys go in depth the way you do I was really I was almost I, I felt privileged to be here to kind of join in on that conversation oh. I felt I felt, no seriously <laughs> seriously because I when I listen to your guys take on there'll be blood there are times I felt like I, there are times I started jumping in on the conversation when I wasn't even there I just started talking <laughs> and, it, it, well, and, and you guys provoke great talk in that regard and I think that was really a uh, great stuff and we really we really love to listen to you guys as well so I appreciate those kind words too and if i if i'm not mistaken uh jason we have some star wars to talk in a little bit too isn't that true oh yes we do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be awesome it's gonna yeah. be so so not the same experience he, he never no. stops talking about it he's so excited <laughs> <laughs> oh man I, this this is so cool I'm, I'm i'm loving the positive reactions that i'm hearing so far mm -hmm. with with regards to rogue one i mean uh, I, I understand that some people will, will you know there's a lot of hyperbole going on right now scott Nance yeah. is just kind of tweeting out in all caps you know that's the greatest i, I take thing. him with a small grain of salt he's very hyperbolic in pretty much everything he says uh yeah but but at the same time i'm, I'm glad to see the positive reception that this film has been getting it, it seems very overwhelmingly positive which is great and that does happen a lot with early reactions on twitter especially for those that got a chance to go to the world premiere there's a lot of uh, excitement that comes with that too that may be projecting in these reactions but it's mm. it's glad to see that star wars is still back in a way where we can actually go to the movies and get a good Star Wars movie again and, and that's something uh, that was lacking for a while it's comforting I mean the, the, the one guy I was hoping would have a, 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 a like a a little bit of a, a lower reaction, something that's not necessarily as hyperbolic as we were talking about, is, is Christian Harloff. Because he usually has, his pulse is pretty good when it comes to all of the, everything at Star Wars. And like I was mentioning before the show, he's the guy who's basically become the figurehead, uh, you know, the one that champions Star Wars the way he does. And yeah. he came out and he said, I'm going to say that this is the film that you're looking for. You know, he's quoting yeah. directly from uh, from uh, A New Hope and I thought that was interesting the way that he would have shaped it according to that. This is A mm. New Hope. You know, it's not just a fluke with The Force Awakens. Now we're actually going and exploring a little bit more of, of, the, of, the, of the Star Wars canon and I can't wait. It's going to be fun mm -hmm. to talk about it. It's going to be difficult to not get into spoilers because JD was telling me, but yeah, you, you can do it. And I was like, fuck, that's not the way my brain works, but yeah. we'll figure well, it well, out. The, <laughs> the hope is that, the hope on the show is that if the, if the show doesn't go long, too long, uh, 
uh, we want to try and make a section for spoilers to at least talk about that too, so that might be a part of the plan as well to kind of veer into that when we get the chance to. Cool. All right, That's so where amazing. can we find you, sir? Well, you can find In Session Film uh, at www.insessionfilm.com. We're also very active on Twitter, at In Session Film. We're on Facebook. Also, find and subscribe to us on iTunes. We really appreciate some feedback there. But if you want to find me personally on Twitter, I'm at Brendan J. Cassidy. You can find all my madness-related tweets, and you can find, you can get angry at me for certain things, when I, especially when I tweet about how much I love Sp- Steven Spielberg's AI, artificial intelligence. I guess <laughs> it's one of his I've best. I've seen those debates. You, yeah, so okay, that. thank you, thank you. Uh, and I, but I, get a lo- I still get a lot of hate for that, and I love welcoming the debates on that film, because that's a film that needs to be reevaluated. So if you want to yes, come in, if you want to come and join those debates with me, find me on Twitter there. Excellent. Lee, where can we find you, sir? Let's close it up. Yeah, man. Uh, Again, just want to say, Brendan, thanks for being on the show. It's been incredible. I, I've loved that we've got a, a like a like a proper like discussion discussion out of this. You know, it's, you're <laughs> My a great, pleasure. you were a great fit, and you know, you were saying such really lovely things about you know wanting to jump in. I'm the exact same in session, so uh, I always I'm listening to you and and, and, and JD and and Vince Liu who joined you. Yeah, I'm always going. Yes, you're right. Uh, um, and then, or, or <laughs> no, yeah. Stupid bastards! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the beauty so, about subjective criticism. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it, it, it's it's been a huge you know privilege to have you with us and to have this, such a great show. We really I really have enjoyed today's discussion. Yeah, thank um, you. Appreciate it. So uh, if anybody wants to look at my stuff, I'm on BigPictureReviews.co.uk, and uh, if you want to talk to me on Twitter, I am at BigPickReviews. If you thought that I am a crazy person for either being uh, for talking about hedonism. Or even admitting uh, being a relapsed Catholic, go ahead. <laughs> let's let's discuss. Uh, yeah, but th- thanks for listening as always, people. It's, uh, I'm talking on Twitter. I get lots of messages about discussions about my reviews and stuff like that. It's it's so crazy. I can't believe. It. Still, I only started in like April, so it's 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 mad. Same thing, <laughs> I can't same thing for me, man. I'm exactly in the same camp. I don't understand what the fuck is going on right now with all yeah. my shit. It's, it's so cool. It's grown so much since, like, I think it was March for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So it's, this has Badness. been amazing Absolutely. so far. So, yeah. <laughs> my name is Jason Michael. You can find me at film underscore faculty on Twitter. Or you can visit the film faculty website uh, at WordPress. I'm too lazy to buy the domain name, so just type that in and you'll find something there. <laughs> I'm not as... Um, as uh, quick for reviews as Lee is, he pumps things out. You can check out his review on Moana if you want to, or you can check mine is, which is going to be an empty page. I do that. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I, I want to it. thank you guys all. I want to thank you guys all for listening, uh, tuning in. Uh, please, like I said, uh, leave us a little review on iTunes if you can. And what I'd really like it, uh, I want to give a shout out to Gavin of Mini Media Reviews. He yeah, actually yeah. Uh, commented on our track for There Will Be Blood this week, and he's actually getting into the groove. I love the fact that people are interacting with SoundCloud. Uh, the reason why I chose that is so that people can actually go and comment on specific points on the tracks where they disagree or agree. It's a great way for us to get in contact with you guys. So, Gavin, thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Uh, big shout-out to Yuche again. Uh, he loves for us to mention his name on the podcast. So, Yuche, <laughs> Yuche, thank you so much for keeping in with us. Uh, JD, again, thank you so much for 
accepting. Uh, so just just the fact that you accepted to come on the show is good enough for us. We'll get you on at a different point. I'm looking forward to talking with In Session. Uh, check us out. We're going to be talking about Rogue One. And obviously, Lee and I are going to be doing our thing, which is going to be a spoiler-heavy review. So uh, that's about it. See you next time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.